Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Macheon Diagnostics. In this podcast series, we will be discussing thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Macheon Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. Okay, today I wanted to talk about uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Once again, I got a call today from a doc in the intensive care unit who had a patient who dropped his platelets to less than 50% of what they had been when he first came into the ICU. Doctors sent off uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, an HIT panel, and results have come back, and he's calling now asking, how do I make sense out of this? What does this really mean, and what should I be doing with this patient? Let's take a step back and talk again about this. Firstly, what is HIT? And I'm not going to talk about this really in any kind of detail at all, but it's, a, it's the development of, a, of an antibody against the complex of platelet factor 4, a substance released from platelets typically, and heparin. So it's the complex of those two. It's not either one of them. And that antibody, platelet factor 4, heparin complex, is then able to bind, actually by the FC end of the uh, antibody to a large extent, is able to bind to endothelial cells and to some extent to monocytes, causing thrombosis, activating the the thrombotic cascade. And this can be an utterly devastating disorder. It occurs in about 2 to 3% of patients who are exposed to uh, heparin. What's important is that of those patients who develop HIT, up to 50% will have thrombosis, and maybe half of those patients will end up dying ultimately of complications uh, of their HIT. And many of them will, will lose limbs to their HIT as well as to the underlying the disorder um, that, that put them in the situation where they might have developed HIT. But it's a very serious disorder. And for years now, we've strongly encouraged people to raise their, their sensitivity to this disorder and be careful not to miss it because missing this cause of thrombocytopenia can be so devastating. Strangely, we seem to have reached a tipping point um, with HIT, much like we have with so much else in the world today. And we're, we are perhaps oftentimes overdiagnosing this disorder, increasing the cost of care, and also exposing patients to changes in anticoagulation or to uh, somewhat more risky anticoagulation sometimes, which, which may have other kinds of human costs as well as the financial costs. So I wanted to talk a bit about how to approach this disorder. So when do you think about HIT? I still say the same thing I always thought. You think about it very, very often. The sensitivity of diagnosing this disorder, if you don't think about it, is just about zero. You've got to think about it for a moment at the very least. After you think about it, the next step is not to order one of my HIT panels. The first step is really to do an assessment of the relative risk of this patient having HIT. A, a typical way to do that is with Workington's 4T scoring system. Now, I'm not going to go through that in any detail, although I do want to talk about a few little uh, interesting glitches in there. But you can find that online. You can find it in a, in a lot of places. Um, in, in many of the articles that are authored by Workington um, will include a reference to his 4T scoring system. Basically, what it does is it looks at patients who have an 
an unexplained cause of thrombocytopenia. And that can get a little bit tricky sometimes. What about the patient who's on chemotherapy and then drops his platelet count in the setting of getting heparin also? That can be tricky, trying to decide who did it. It requires some clinical judgment about the timing and depth of, of expected thrombocytopenia, for example, with chemotherapy versus the possibility that it was the heparin. But if you clearly have an explanation for the thrombocytopenia, then HIT is really not something that's going to be high on your list of possibilities. That thrombocytopenia will classically be relatively modest thrombocytopenia, typically around 50% drop. Can it be less? Sure. Occasionally, you'll see HIT with a very mild drop in, in the platelet count. More problematic is that on occasion, you'll see a very severe drop in, in platelet count. You'll notice in the scoring system that you actually get fewer points for a very severe drop, but as many as 10% of patients with HIT will drop their platelet counts down to the 10,000 range and, and truly have HIT. And those patients are often at particularly high risk of having complications, thrombotic complications of their HIT. Um, in terms of the timing, classically HIT occurs in a kind of 5 to 12 day window after the initiation of heparin. Um, the heparin can be heparin flushes, it can be prophylactic dose sub-Q heparin, or it can be full dose uh, heparin. Full dose uh, heparin is a bit more likely to cause HIT, and unfractionated heparin is dramatically more likely to cause it. So if someone has only been on on a, an unf a uh, low molecular weight heparin, the risk of them having HIT is much diminished. But be careful, because if they've had even a short exposure to heparin, and then are switched to unfractionated heparin, the heparin itself may have triggered the antibody formation and the unfractionated heparin does a great job of continuing the process of HIT once those antibodies have been induced by the unfractionated heparin. Just to liven up the story, although the classic presentation is in that five to 12 day window after exposure, you do on occasion see late onset uh, HIT, even after the heparin has been stopped. Patients coming back to the hospital a week, a month even, um, after they've been discharged home. And on occasion, you can see early onset HIT in patients who've had a previous exposure to heparin recently. And you can see an onset classically within 18 to 24 hours, occasionally even more quickly than that. And the rapid onset can occasionally be a devastating process. So classic timing is classic, but there, there are tails to the curve and you do see um, other un somewhat unusual uh, presentations. The thrombosis tends to be often both large and small vessel, not exclusively microvascular, but indeed you can get uh, purpuric lesions, you can get all kinds of uh, thrombotic uh, lesions in, in these patients. So again, think about the possibility every time you see thrombocytopenia in a patient on heparin, after you think about it, run the 4T score. If they have a low score, the chance of them actually having clinical HIT, particularly if they're in the ICU, is very small. Even in non-ICU patients, the, in Workington's paper, the risk of having HIT with a low score was in the 1 to 300 range. Um, they really are very, very unlikely, and that's a much lower score if the patient is in the ICU where there are often multiple other uh, potential causes for the, HI, for the thrombocytopenia. Um, you, you may, you probably do not want to proceed with testing in someone with a low score. Intermediate, high scores, it's, it's worth uh, proceeding with HIT uh, testing. So when you do proceed with the HIT testing, how do you make sense out of, out of this 
out of these results. There are two kinds of testing that are going to be done when you order the testing. Firstly, you're going to get the more rapidly available, more sensitive screening test, if you will, the ELISA, a test that looks for the presence of, of antibodies against these complexes. Uh, this ELISA test is very sensitive, perhaps too sensitive. Um, early on, we liked this sensitivity because we felt very strongly that you don't want to miss any cases of uh, HIT. At, at this point, we're beginning to be a little more selective about how much sensitivity we want in this assay. Um, many patients in the hospital who've been started on heparin, cardiac surgery patients, for example, who may have gotten heparin during their uh, catheterization, and then again when they come for the cardiac surgery, very often have uh, ELISA positivity. So the ELISA positivity itself absolutely does not diagnose HIT by itself. Negativity on the ELISA assay is a very good predictor for not having HIT. Is it perfect? No, nothing's perfect. Occasionally, patients have HIT and have negative ELISAs. Very, very uncommon, though. Um, another pearl about ELISAs is that the optical density of the test correlates with the chance that this will be a true case of HIT. So that in patients who have a positive test but an optical density less than, for example, 0. Uh, less than one, rather. The chance of them having HIT um, in Workington's trial was in the 1% range. In our, in our hands, it's about 0.8%. Um, it is not very likely to happen. And that begins to rise in the 1 to 1.4 optical density range. In his hands, it was about 18% um, of patients who uh, turned out to have HIT. 1.4 to 2, it goes up to 50%. And in patients with optical densities above 2, um, in our hands, the chance that they have HIT is in the 85% range. So it becomes very likely. One, the possibility has been raised by some that perhaps with a low optical density uh, HIT, you don't need to even proceed with uh, functional testing. And I'll talk about that in a second to confirm the diagnosis. That may turn out to be true, certainly in terms of cost effectiveness, although 3% of the, of the patients actually having HIT turns out to be a significant number of people. We've seen about 100 patients um, with very low optical densities who had uh, functionally positive uh, tests. So after you get the ELISA test, how do you confirm it? You're going to confirm it with a functional assay. That is an assay that shows that in this patient, those antibodies are able to activate platelets the confirmation of, of the ability to cause the physiology, if you will, of, of HIT. And there are two of those assays currently uh, commonly used. In this country, the most commonly used is the serotonin release assay, where you measure radioactive serotonin, which is released from platelets activated by this antibody complex. Um, in Europe, now the most common assay is the heparin-induced platelet aggregation. Um, this is There is no radioactivity here. You're simply looking for uh, platelet aggregation induced by these antibody complexes. Um, and that's actually the assay that we offer here at Machion. Both these assays have similar, very high specificities, roughly 96% specificity for the HIPAA assay, and moderately good sensitivity in the 60 to 75% range. So they're not quite as sensitive, but they are quite, they are very specific for HIT. So should you get a positive ELISA, 
um, and then a positive HIPAA, you're done. You have a case of HIT. The chance of getting that positive HIPAA is very high if the, if the optical density on the ELISA test was high initially. So when you get back that preliminary ELISA test and they tell you the optical density of two, very likely that this patient is going to turn out to actually have a con- positive confirmatory HIPAA um, or, or functional assay shortly thereafter. On the other hand, if you have a patient and the ELISA test is low optical density positive, even if we initially report it as a positive but low titer positive, the chance that that will be confirmed is much lower. It's not zero, but it's quite low. We do routinely roll over in all of the positives and do a functional assay because on occasion, even the, the, the low titer ELISA positives will turn out to be true HITs, but the chance of that happening is actually quite small. Um, once you've diagnosed the HIT, actually once you think about HIT, you want to stop the patient's heparin. And if you have a positive ELISA test, you want to start them on an, on a, on an appropriate anticoagulant to protect them. These sometimes called isolated HITs, patients who have not yet had their thrombosis but are but are serologically positive. These patients seem to be at fairly high risk of thrombosing during that window, since the highest risk of thrombosis is uh, right after the development of the antibodies. They're at high risk of thrombosis, and it's probably a mistake to not anticoagulate them um, at this during this period of time. What you use is, a, is probably uh, fodder for another podcast, but more and more people are, I think, moving away from Argatravan, which can be difficult in these patients since they're often sick and they often have baseline prolonged PTTs, which makes it very hard to assess the appropriate dosing of the Argatravan. And many people are moving to the as yet unapproved use of Fondaparinux and the question of possibly even using uh, the novel oral anticoagulants, the DOACs, is certainly being raised and certainly has been reported um, in small and anecdotal series successfully. All right, there, that'll get you started. Should you have any questions about managing these patients with HIT, either in terms of who needs to have testing done, what kind of testing, how to interpret it, or the management after, uh, you're always welcome to, to give me a call here at MateGen Diagnostics. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Mechion Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening. And if you have a question or comment or there's a topic you'd like Dr. Lewis to speak to, please send us an email to bloodsweatandsmears at machiondiagnostics.com. That's M-A-C-H-A-O-N diagnostics.com. You can follow Machion at Twitter at machiondx. Be sure to subscribe to stay in the know. Share this podcast with clinicians you think might appreciate it. And we hope you'll join us next time here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears.